0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free
1: audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player.
0: That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L.
1: Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. And that's a Happy New Year from our producer, Gar. We're going to be cautiously optimistic this new year here at the... the History of Literature podcast. Gar, I don't think we need to hear the sound every time I say the words New Year, okay?
2: Good. I'm
1: I'm Jack Wilson. That's my producer, Gar, who has a mind of his own, often to his detriment. I'm not sure how many people you can say that about. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. It's 2017, everyone. I'm excited about this new year. And I hope you are too. We have a lot of great shows lined up, or in the works, or on the horizon. So many good topics to cover, and so many good guests who are eager to help us out, including our first one of the year, which is today's show, Vu Tran, author of the novel Dragonfish and a professor of creative writing. He's back for a repeat performance, and he and I are going to run down his list of great first chapters. We'll look under the hood, so to speak. I like that metaphor. Think of these novels as race cars. Some of them roar into life. Some of them purr. Fast cars, full of power, ready to burn rubber, ready to wow us, leave us breathless. And think of Vu as our expert guide, the head of the pit crew, who's inviting us down to track level. He's going to open up the hood and show us what's in there. Help us see how each of these chapters works. Two things to say about this one up front, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is we had some audio issues with the recording. We were able to fix most of it, but some of it, there's still a a legacy of some scratchiness from the microphone. My apologies for that. I think it's still very listenable. Just give it a try. Hopefully it Doesn't uh, affect your listening experience too much. You can think of it, if it helps, you might think of it as a vinyl record. A well worn vinyl record, much loved, with a few little scratches, smudges, clicks, and pops, all part of the ambiance. Give it a little character, those flaws. This is an authentic recording.
0: It's not slick.
1: It's not overproduced. It's not scripted.
0: What's the good news?
1: The good news is we could not have a better show for the new year. Great first chapters. Time for new beginnings.
0: For putting aside the problems of the past and
1: looking ahead and plunging forward. I'm cranking up the optimism, and I hope you are too. Now, let's remind ourselves of where we are This is the History of Literature podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and more information at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Some of you have joined us in mid-journey. You may have missed some of the earlier episodes where I talked about the purpose of this show. I have been reading books, immersed in books, for a long time. I don't always have faith in literature, but I don't really know where else to turn either. So I started this show to examine literature, to think through the the pains of life and the joys, the pains and the joys, agonies and ecstasies. I'm thinking my way through literature, I'm reading or rereading my way through literature, and I'm seeing what's there. But my focus in some ways it isn't really on literature. Not literature isn't some golden calf that I'm planning to worship or inviting you to worship. I don't really care about literature in a lot of ways. (laughs) I know it's an odd admission. I'm interested in the human condition as it's expressed or as it's embodied or as it's reflected in literature. I'm interested in the authors who wrote these works and the readers who have experienced them. Look, I can tell you what this show is and what it isn't. It is not an orderly walk through literature. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a forced march. It's not that kind of journey. Sometimes we'll miss books. Sometimes we'll skip authors. Sometimes we'll consider an author and talk about something else altogether. We don't go from point A to point B. We go to a lot of different points. A to G to R to Y and back to B. Sometimes on this journey, we'll take a break and dive into a crystal blue lake and splash around, or take off our shoes and romp through a sun-filled meadow. Sometimes we'll enter a strange city and spend an afternoon wandering the streets. Sometimes on a hot day, we'll see a, a, a shady spot under a weeping willow, and we'll stop for a nap. And just dream for a while. That's the path. That's the journey. I can only do it this way. I can only go with what interests me. Week by week. Episode by episode. I'll do my best. And we'll get there. We will get there. Or we'll get somewhere. We will be getting there. We'll be getting somewhere together. Okay. Enough about the path. This week... Our diversion is to the racetrack, so put on your coveralls, come down to the pit with me, and let's let Vutran show us some of these beautiful engines.
0: The Great Gatsby, Beloved, The Secret History, Invisible Man, The Virgin Suicides, 100 Years of Solitude, Disgrace, and some others. So fasten your seatbelts, because here we go. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: Okay, joining me now is Vu Tran, author of the novel Dragonfish and an assistant professor in the English department at the University of Chicago. Professor Tran, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast.
3: Oh, I'm so happy to be back. It's Great to talk to you again.
1: Okay, so I invited you back because you had mentioned last time that you're teaching a course this semester that I thought was fascinating, and it focuses on first lines and first chapters in great novels. Yes. What gave you the idea to focus on the beginnings?
3: Uh, honestly, it was a selfish uh, reason. I, uh, I'm trying to start my my second novel. <laughs> I've been thinking about an idea for almost a year and it, I can't quite mm. get started. And you realize there are so many decisions, or at least for me, there are so many decisions involved in starting a novel. So I thought I'd just teach a class on it and see if I couldn't resolve some of those questions for myself. And at the same time, uh, learn as much as I can again about writing a novel right. uh, and help the students as well as myself along the way.
1: Now, are the students taking the course, uh, are these literature students or creative writing students?
3: These are all creative writing students. They're graduate and undergraduate students. And some of them are writing, you know, their first, their second or third novel. Uh, Some of them, this will be their first time trying out a novel, attempting one. Mm. Uh, but yeah, they're all, you know, this is all uh, novels and they're all working on the first chapter, if not the second chapter.
1: When you read a lot of the openings and we're going to be talking about 10 of them here today, or if we can get to all 10, the the list that you chose, they're all so perfect and they also perfectly match the themes of the book. And it it strikes me that one of the things that you might have to resolve for yourself as a creative writer is if you're going to write your way through a novel. Mm-hmm. As you're drafting the opening, you might not fully be aware of your themes. But then it seems like it's a pretty dangerous game to count on. Well, I can go back and fix the opening because the whole yeah. rest of it might kind of fall apart. So it, it's almost like you have you're on this high wire act of getting the opening right right from the start. It's pretty hard to do unless you have the entire novel in your head already.
3: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I i'm really curious about but i i can't answer unless i have these writers here and of course some of them are long dead i would love to ask them if they had written this chapter first or did they you know write the novel and go back and rewrite the first chapter you know how much of this first chapter was there how much of the style was there how much of the plot and and the characterizations were there the style i'm i'm particularly curious about you know Yep. You know, the style and the, the narrative voice, did they develop it as they wrote the novel or, or did they just have it immediately?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But, you know, one of the reasons that I did teach the class and why I think it's crucial is that, you know, when you write a first chapter, you're not just teaching the reader how to read your book. As the writer, in many ways, you're teaching yourself how to write the book. Right. You're laying the, the groundwork for the rest of the novel. That's why it's so important to me. You know, every writer writes... Differently, uh, but the way I write, I need that first chapter to to tell me how to write the rest of the book.
1: Right. Let's go to the first pick, uh, which is The Great Gatsby. You know, we kind of associate Fitzgerald with a, a kind of lyricism and a kind of colloquial voice, but That's he's right. also very economical in the way he's able to. To get his scenes going and get his characters going and get his main themes out there. So, what do you admire about this, or what do you, what did you, you and your students find when you dug into *The Great Gatsby*?
3: Well, yeah, I, so. I admire it for the reasons you just stated. But you know, I I had a professor who who used to tell me that he would type out uh, the first chapter of *The Great Gatsby*. He always encourages <laughs> go go and type it out, right? Because uh, that's really the way to to really get a sense of, of his language. And, and you're right, the lyricism is a big part of it. But the thing that I I started noticing, uh, and I actually hadn't reread Gatsby in a long time, but you realize that the voice is this really discursive and philosophizing voice. It's a mm-hmm. very intelligent and, and wise voice. But then you slowly start getting a sense that it, Nick Haraway is not as reliable as you might think and that the intelligence and wisdom in his voice is a way for him to it's like he's taking you gently and 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 beautifully by the collar and asking you to trust him Mm -hmm. please trust me that that everything i'm saying here and that my judgment is correct it's very interesting, you know, because, you know, the the very first line in my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. And the advice is an advice about judgment. You know, it's an admonition against superficiality. Right. But that's exactly what he ends up doing in the first chapter, which is judging all the characters from this part of his life. Right. In a sense, trying to communicate his outrage for the life that they represent and the life all, that he was seduced by. Mm. It's a judgment against his younger self. So you know, it's it's that weird balance between stating outright that I don't want to judge people, you know, reserving judgment is a matter of infinite hope. It's a wonderful line. And then going on and judging people. All right. <laughs> There's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of anger there.
1: It sets us up for what it's going to deliver. Like we're he I was struck by how he actually refers to the title of the book. That that it's the Great Gatsby, and so we we know that this you know story is going to be about an individual, mm-hmm. but we also learn very early on that it's not just going to be a, a conventional biography, but another story here is going to be how Gatsby affects Caraway, and how how uh, get uh, Carraway's changing position toward Gatsby is going to be where a lot of the drama of the book is.
3: You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I actually had forgotten that, that Nick very self-consciously says that this is a book. Mm -hmm. Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book. It's a weird moment, you know, and you realize that it's a very self-conscious narrative in that sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a professor at my MFA who, said that, you know, it's a wonderful book, but it's flawed. She said this to uh, <laughs> a bunch of high schoolers, actually, and I was present, and I must have made a face. <laughs> uh, because she looked at it, and she had said that, well, it's flawed because because Nick tells us stuff that he couldn't know, that there's no way for him to know, you know, hmm. uh, like Gatsby's backstory. And I had made a face, and she she said, boo, you disagree, and I said, well, yeah, I do, because that's kind of the point. I'd always read Nick Hareway as someone who tried to live vicariously through Gatsby, and and both admires, but but has this, like he said, unaffected scorn for Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And what that really tells you, and what this first chapter tells you, is that you know the book is really about Nick. You know, if you have a first-person narrator, the story is about the first-person narrator. Right. The book seems to be all about Gatsby, but it's really about Nick. And this admiration for someone who he now, he's still trying to figure out his feelings for this person, Yeah, this person that he both admires and judges, and, and the life and the, the kind of American dream that Gatsby uh, embodies, mm-hmm. it, it's a very complicated feeling, and it's really about... Nick's complicated feelings for all that that's are not really ever resolved, I think, in the novel.
1: It's really the book Fitzgerald was born to write in a way too. He kind of had that himself, whether it was with Hemingway or with Edmund Wilson, or he always had those figures in his life that he admired, but he he couldn't help measuring himself against them, but but he was kind of fascinated by them, and all of that churning around in his mind, uh, you know, fused with all this nostalgia and the feeling of youth and getting older, it really feels like all of his themes, all of Fitzgerald's themes in his life and his art are just, they all come come to the fore in this opening chapter and in this novel.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it might be what I mean when I call a, a novel perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this feels to me like a perfect novel, but it's not a perfect novel you know, in terms of of how I react to it, it seems like a perfect novel because, like exactly like you said, it's the novel. If you know enough about Gatsby and his life, this was the perfect novel for him.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: He really did lay out all of the concerns that he had throughout his life, and and dramatized it perfectly in this book. Mm. And if you can think, you know, there's always this kind of kind of weird almost silly conversation about great American novels and what that means, but I do think this novel captures the American spirit I- I- in a way that I think few novels have, or no other novel that I can think of, because it is such a, uh, a complicated idea, the American spirit, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
3: this need to rewrite the past, to revitalize the past, to control your reality so that in a sense, you, you you know your definition of yourself can can survive. Mm-hmm. All of that, I I feel I think he captures, and it's a very American thing, I think. Right, uh, and there's class,
1: cool. but there's class, but but class is very fluid, and it's exactly it's, about, it's invented or it's it can be almost imagined into existence.
3: You're right. I, I think there are a few cultures and few peoples who who can uh, create fantasies for themselves. The way Americans can, right? But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's fake, but it's definitely problematic, right?
2: Hmm.
1: Oh, Okay. Great. Well, I think we could probably talk. We could probably spend the whole hour just on Gatsby, but
3: oh, for sure. <laughs>
1: I want to. I want to get to the others. And the next one I I found was even more remarkable when I returned to it, which is Edith Wharton's uh, The Age of Innocence. Mm-hmm. This is one we talked about the last time you were on the show, and uh, you did such a good job of of setting forth why it was one of your all-time favorite books. I was just floored by the first paragraph of this and how it yeah. sets up the themes. Uh, and this one I actually thought I'd like to read for our listeners just so they, they may not be as, as familiar with it. Oh, Wonderful. On a January evening of the early 70s, Christine Nielsen was singing in Faust at the Academy of Music in New York. Though there was already talk of the erection, in remote metropolitan distances above the 40s, of a new opera house which should compete in costliness and splendor with those of the great European capitals, the world of fashion was still content to reassemble every winter in the shabby red and gold boxes of the sociable old academy. Conservatives cherished it for being small and inconvenient, and thus keeping out the new people whom New York was beginning to dread and yet be drawn to. And the sentimental clung to it for its historic associations and the musical for its excellent acoustics, always so problematic a quality in halls built for the hearing of music. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I probably should let you talk about it, but... uh, no, please <laughs> it, tell I me just, what you
3: like about it. I'm curious.
1: Well, what really struck me—maybe I'll be the student; you could be the professor. What I—what struck me as I was going through it is, you know, it's—it's it's written. It would almost be like a, a journalistic account. We don't see any characters. It's almost like written for a magazine or something. Mm-hmm. But if you really dig into it, you see that you know she's getting on the stage here. The—the the new people and that there's that great phrase was beginning to dread and yet be drawn to that mm-hmm. New York was yeah. beginning to dread and yet be drawn to these new people and it's it's setting us up for this clash between the old and the new and mm-hmm. the the two reactions to the changing world that's what that's what i most admired about this we have conservatives who are actively opposed to these new people and then there's the sentimental who are clinging to the past, but the the reasons are somewhat dubious here. There's sort of historic associations and a sense that the new is not always better. And you can almost hear them kind of grumbling of sure. It's beautiful. And it's big, this new opera house you're building up there, but, but it doesn't have the good sound. That's, that's the problem with new, <laughs> yeah. new places like that. And it, it just seemed like it was capturing the whole range of potential responses to the new upstarts and the changing world. And she was just capturing it all in this almost invisible way. You know, it's not, That's right. it's just gently introducing it to us.
3: Well, you know, what's so interesting when I, I, I read a writer of, of this level is you realize that, that every single thing in a narrative is important. Mm-hmm. Is meaningful. You know, the, the fact that it, you know, that the opening scene takes place at an opera house is so interesting and, and crucial to what everything you just said to the novel's themes on the struggle between the new world and the old world,
2: mm-hmm.
3: between the new America, and which represents like a change and a break with conventions, and old world Europe and, and conservative upper class values. And at the same time that these New York conservatives are holding on to the past to keep out these new people, you know, like you said, uh, this conservatism that is embodied in the old Opera House, you know, that's like all there. Yeah. And it, it, and it, it you realize it's the perfect setting for the opening of this novel. Yeah. Um, it's the, the the perfect scene for an introduction to all the ideas that that Wharton is is dealing with. But I you know I I chose it because of of its use of the omniscient point of view because mm-hmm.
2: it, it's mm-hmm.
3: it's a point of view that I struggle with. I, I've never found a satisfying way to teach it. because yep. I'm not sure I, I understand. It, I think it's the hardest point of view to use, which is really strange because that it was the kind of default point of view, you know, in novels pre 1920. Mm-hmm. And and yet nowadays very few writers use it, and and a lot of my students a lot of my students don't are, don't think about point of view as much as they, they should. I don't think most writers, I think they underestimate how important it is. Mm-hmm. But especially omniscient point of view, I think people tend to think that it's just, it allows you this free license to go from one character's perspective to the other. Mm. But here you see that, I mean, what I really love is how purposefully Wharton is using the omniscient point of view. It allows her to give this broad view of the culture she's examining. Yes. It, it introduces us to the, you know, this New York culture. And, and you can only do it with the omniscient. You can only do it like she's doing it with the omniscient. Mm-hmm. If you read further into the, the chapter and you, you know, when Wharton starts uh, introducing the characters and, and starts focusing on Newland Archer, the protagonist, it's really beautiful how wonderfully she calibrates the distance.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: She has to regularly move away from Newland Archer to allow the the omniscient narrator to comment on the larger world, but not too far away because the narrative has to revolve around Newland and his concerns. So it's this really beautiful and and, and elegant calibration of of distance, of point of view Mm -hmm. that she just does wonderfully throughout the novel. And you see it here. If anyone wants to write omniscient point of view – they should look at this novel. I mean, there are plenty of other examples I can think of too, but this one does it really well. Yeah. It, in how perfectly it calibrates distance, and yeah. and so it gives us a broad view of the world, but at the same same time gives us the intimacy that the protagonist's perspective offers.
1: Hmm. I wonder if that uh, ability of hers was one of the things that drew Scorsese to her. I wonder. You know, it almost seems like he was probably reading it and thinking, oh, my God, this is my this is my long shot and this is my close up. (laughs) And this is uh, now I move, you know, I can move into the dining room and now I can move back out and and take a look at the city. And it's uh, it's got that kind of camera movement to it almost.
3: Well, yeah, we might have talked about this last time. Right. But the movie is really a fantastic adaptation. I I love the Rosesi's movie. Uh, I've always Thought of the Scorsese has these like quiet movies, like the uh, the Kundun. I think it was, it yes. was his new right. movie it's called Silence. There's these these quieter movies that are so kind of obsessed with detail. Mm-hmm. I guess all his movies are obsessed with detail. But uh, if you're someone who who loves detail and loves opulence and loves uh, repressed emotion, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Age of Innocence would be the perfect movie to adapt. Right. And he does it really well, but there's—he retains the omniscient voice. You know, there are moments where you could see him really being thoughtful about capturing that omniscient voice mm. of the movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I was thinking of this one in particular when we started out our conversation tonight, and when we were talking about having to know what you were going to say in the opening. <laughs> And I get the feeling that for a lot of writers, maybe they don't rewrite the beginning after they've written the whole thing, unless they're maybe doing a whole new draft. But I, I, I get the sense that a lot of people probably, they probably write a hundred pages and then they realize that they should actually just eliminate the first 80 and start on page 80. And that, that actually is a really good, you know, they found the voice and there's confidence and they're really, they get all the throat clearing out of the way and then they're ready right. to just jump right in. Wharton is the one I thought might be the most intimidating for someone who's thinking about writing a book because she just seems to know exactly what to do and when to do it. It just seems like she had the whole novel in her head writing that perfect first paragraph. You can't imagine how she could have done it otherwise. Wow,
3: wouldn't it be fascinating to know? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the process of her writing this novel, uh, yeah. what she what she might have uh, cut. Right after, after finishing a first draft or if this was always the first paragraph.
1: The only thing I remember hearing about her writing process was that she would lie in bed and she would write a page and she would drop it on the floor and her servant would would come <laughs> in right. and, and pick up the pages and put them in order afterwards and type them up. And it just seems like, you know, I think she maybe just had this mind that could zero in on what she wanted to say and just, uh, all she had to do was was get it onto paper, and um, but yeah, it would be interesting to see some drafts. I would love to see her crossouts and which passages she removed, and and whether she wrote new scenes in, and and that kind of thing.
3: Well, it is interesting. I do think she had already cultivated this voice,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, before writing this book. Not that the novel, her novels, are all that you know, all so similar, but I think this voice was already in her. Right. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a first chapter that that wrote itself in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, because the voice was already there.
1: Yeah, she had the voice and then she figured out what she wanted the book to be about, and then exactly just yeah. matching, matching the two up. Fantastic. Okay, let's take a look at number three, uh, which is another one. She really, <laughs> uh, you really? I mean there's a, there's a couple on your list that uh even even the ones that maybe wouldn't be considered classic great novels are still very famous and very popular and you really uh, uh Yeah, you, you I I decided pick... <laughs> to intimidate the hell out of my students. <laughs> you yeah. didn't pick any clunkers. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Yeah. And I wanted to read the first paragraph of this of this but I'm worried we're going to run out of time a little bit. Maybe uh maybe what do you think?
3: Well, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's up to you. I mean, um, yeah, let's read it. Okay,
1: we'll read. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, we almost have to read this, this first paragraph anyway. Of the, of the prologue is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything Except me,
3: I love it's great, it. Isn't it.
1: It just it it pulls you right in.
3: You know, um, Vit Tanguy's sympathizer, which won the the Pulitzer Prize this year. Mm-hmm. You, you read the first chapter of that novel. I, I know Vit, and, and Vit named his 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 first son Allison. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, wow. Invisible Man is very much in the the genes of of of, of Vit's novel, mm-hmm. and. The his first chapter very much echoes this first chapter for many reasons. Uh, the thing that that struck me is that he's the narrator. I mean, first of all, the language is just absolutely amazing. Yeah. But you know, the narrator is speaking only in metaphors, mm. and and so there's like this. What I felt was this immediate tension between like the literal and the figurative, mm-hmm. the concrete and the abstract, and and that tension is there not just for creative effect, is there because it's been forced on the narrator. Right. You know, he has no choice but to define himself metaphorically because the physical, the concrete, the, the literal world has failed to give him a proper way of defining himself. People don't see him. Right. And, I mean, that's what the rest of the novel is trying to dramatize, is this both literal and metaphoric invisibility. Right. It's not just circumstantial. It's a refusal. People refuse to see me. Mm. And the rest of the novel, you know, it, 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 obviously you can't just write a novel metaphorically. And, and abstractions and metaphors alone can't drive the novel. So so Ellison is constantly dramatizing, dramatizing these very concrete episodes, experiences,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, that represent these feelings, these, these metaphors. That he's talking about. And, and, and it's wonderful because they're so complex and and interesting. You know, there's just the, the idea of like inner seeing. The next paragraph uh, on the first page talks about the way people see through their inner eyes. Right. I thought that was wonderful because we all see things differently mm-hmm. through our inner eyes. And obviously that, that will affect the way we see the physical concrete world. And that's something that the Invisible Man has to struggle throughout the novel and beyond the end of the novel right anyway its it's it's just it's wonderful and and the fact that Ellison can articulate that state of being so beautifully mm. perfectly is is stunning it's very intimidating to see yeah, and
1: it it's so what I like about it so much is that it it really is calling out the reader and it's saying. Yes. Look, look, this is this has been a one-way street here. I know a lot about you and how you think, and mm-hmm. you know nothing about me. And it's mm-hmm. it's kind of setting up. And but yet at the same time, it's so lively and alert and and observant and shrewd and funny. The whole chapter and the key phrase I thought was where it said, uh, "I might even be said to have a mind." And, you know, you read three or four sentences and you're like, well, yeah, I think you've already proven that, you know, that Mm -hmm. that you're you've got these abilities and this just this personality. And it it almost is basically throwing down the gauntlet and saying, look, I'm going to spend the next few hundred pages showing you what you've been missing by completely overlooking people like me.
3: That's right. That's right.
1: Um And. Yeah, such a
3: great and, book, and we're all implicated, you know. You know, it's it's not just you know the white reader; it's 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 uh, it's everyone, right? Uh, uh, even himself to a degree. Mm-hmm. The way he's seen himself has been informed by by white supremacy, right? By the dominant class, and and he understands that there is no other novel that I that I can think of where I you get to a certain age, you realize how many novels you've forgotten. Yeah. You've read a, a lot of novels, but you, you you remember whether you liked them or not, and and how they made you feel, but you can't quite remember details and plots. And yet, I remember *Invisible Man* so vividly. I I, I remember the episodes so vividly, mm. um, and that's just a testament to to Ellison's writing.
1: Oh, it is so good. Okay, let's uh, let's move to number four. Now, I'm going to make a prediction. I've followed the order. I followed the I followed the order of your syllabus, yeah. And I am going to guess that when you got to number four, which is the Secret History by Donna Tartt, you had at least a few students who thought, "Okay, bingo. This is one. This is one I can I can write in this style. It's going to let me launch my yeah. thriller that I want to write, or my murder mystery, or whatever it is." So, uh, what? Uh, compelled you to put this on the syllabus and and how did it resonate with the what was the reaction when the students got to this this point in the course
3: well you 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 hit that right on the head uh (laughs) hit the nail on the head there i mean the students really did love this one and it does feel more doable in the in in a sense whether they they actually thought that or not Mm -hmm. one of the i mean it's a great novel it's a fantastic it's still i think her best novel yeah the, but the reason I want to teach is is because it's a prologue. Invisible Man's a prologue, too, but this is a more kind of conventional prologue.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And the thing I always notice is that, you know, I've been teaching for so long, uh, n- no matter if the student is 19 years old or, or, or 50 years old, they always have a prologue.
2: Mm.
3: About 75% <laughs> of the, the novels that I read have a prologue. And I feel like people want to feel like they're writing a novel, they want to feel legitimate, and somehow a prologue makes it feel like a legitimate novel. Right. But they never ask themselves, why a prologue? I don't think enough people, I think, you know, 75% of the of the novels I read have a prologue, and I would <laughs> say 90% of those prologues are not necessary. Right. You know? Yeah. And of course, that really makes you <laughs> ask, well, what is the function of a prologue? Especially, what is a good prologue? What does it do? I think it does a lot of things. We, we talked about how... I feel there are certain prologues that comment grandly on the whole of the novel. Yes. In a way that no other chapter can. Mm -hmm. It can, obviously, it can hook the reader like this one does. Secret History totally hooks the reader. It it introduces a murder. I mean, the, the first sentence is the snow in the mountains was melting and bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation yeah (laughs) it's just fantastic uh not to mention the fact that the the person dead is named bunny and who the fuck is named bunny Bunny, right
1: yeah and the whole the first paragraph is kind of this manhunt for the killer And then the second paragraph, we really get this shocker where it says, you know, it is difficult to believe that Henry's modest plan could have worked so well despite these unforeseen events. We hadn't intended to hide the body where it couldn't be found. And then you just think, wait, here's a person who was in on the killing. They're showing like zero remorse. And who's Mm -hmm. this Henry who had this plan? And how did, you know, you really... It's enough suspense put into place that it could carry you for the next few hundred pages just trying to figure out how you got to that point.
3: That's right. That's right. And, and yeah, it, it introduces all of these really intriguing questions, and it intimates that this is not only that the narrator is involved, and he says it's partially involved, which is so interesting, the word partially responsible. It, it, that creates its own list of questions, right? Mm-hmm. But like, you know, a first chapter could ask all those questions, but why does it need to be a prologue? And, and that made me think that I think certain prologues, certain really effective prologues cast this shadow, usually in the form of questions or a mystery. And it's a shadow that the rest of the novel operates under, That that without that prologue, you know, it, it completely decontextualizes the rest of the novel in a weird way. Uh, you know, I just recently interviewed Zadie Smith about her, her most recent novel, uh, Swing Time. And mm. that novel does the same thing with its prologue. It introduces a plot point that you can't forget. And the rest of the novel you're you're constantly you might forget, but you'll remind yourself, Oh, the prologue told me that this is going to happen.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
3: and it's a it's a really compelling way to to create this tension and this um this shadow that the novel lives under right and I think that's a really really interesting thing that a prologue can do. I think basically if you uh, the question of whether you should have a prologue or not if if you remove the prologue and your novel is is much worse <laughs> then that's a good prologue you know right right uh, it completely changes the way we read it that's a good prologue. And if it doesn't do make that much of a difference, then you don't need it.
2: Yeah. I I
1: think a a lot of, a lot of people's prologues from beginning writers, especially are probably, if you're thinking of the experience of what you're about to put a reader through, and it's almost like throwing a reader into a swimming pool, a prologue is kind of like, well, maybe we'll just ease them in a little bit. Maybe we'll talk about why the book was written, or we'll talk about some of the, the themes without actually getting into the real, the fiction and, and making them immerse themselves in this world.
3: That's right. And, you know, and the, the thing is, is that I think most people would think, well, what makes this prologue so great is that it introduces a murder. And, and, and you know, right. it's so intriguing. And it's right. this wonderful plot and it, it sucks you in. And it definitely does that. But really, the reason that the prologue is so effective is the last line of the prologue, which is, um, what is it that this is the only I suppose at one time in my life, I might have had an, any number of stories. Mm. But now there is no other. This is the only story I will ever be able to tell.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And you realize that what the prologue is doing is telling you that that this is about the narrator and that this is something that changed their life. Uh,
1: irrevocably. Right. This isn't just a, a a body on a a body on page 1 like you might get in a, a pulp detective exactly. novel or something. It's yeah. it's it's really going to be about the narrator. Let's jump ahead because mm-hmm. I wanted sure. to the the one that this uh brings to mind is what we actually have here is number 9. But mm-hmm. it's uh 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel oh, Garcia yeah. Marquez and I'm struck by how he basically gets his prologue and I guess it's six words in the first sentence. <laughs> and um, I mean, he's just the master of, of first lines, but it, it's uh, many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. And it That's just seems right. like that, that little phrase, you know, as he faced the firing squad, It's like, (laughs) okay, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about the ice. We're going to talk about the magical afternoon with the father. But just so you know, there's you know, we also have this person as a grown up and we'll we'll have to get back to that later.
3: Yes. Yeah. And yeah, that that first phrase is like the prologue of the novel, right? Exactly. The rest of the novel really kind of lives under that the shadow of that, you know, the firing squad, that moment. But, you know, what I love about it is, is that last part is, you know, on the day to discover ice. I mean, it's just so
2: unexpected.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of all the things you think is to, to discover ice. I mean, who discovers ice? What world are we in? Right. That someone would have to uh, that ice would have to be revealed to someone. You know, yes. it's just such an interesting thing to say. Right. <laughs> and it really it, it really kind of throws you into a very different kind of world.
1: Right. If you um, think about the way the first half of that sentence goes, it's so much more likely that it would end when his father first showed him how to clean a rifle, or yeah, you know, yeah, when yeah, his father yeah. took him, helped him register to to sign up for the army or something like that. But no, it's when his father took him to discover ice, and the whole rest of the chapter is like that. It's just one kind of uh, uh, Marquezian uh, surprise after another, and and just that that kind of deadpan description of things that are very comic. Mm -hmm. I'm always struck by how kind of sober and and serious they are. There's the great part at the ending uh, of this chapter where the, the colonel's father places his hand on the ice and it says, as if giving testimony on the Holy scripture. And he
2: exclaimed,
1: this is the great invention of our time.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that's what this novel, but all of, Marquez's work does is that it, it, it makes what would be normal to some people magical yeah people always attach Marquez to magic realism I think that term is really kind of weird because to Marquez and the people and the characters of this world this is not it, it's not magic you know it's reality mm-hmm. Marquez also knows his reader and he, he understands that that you know when he says something like to discover ice there is a magical quality to that to that phrase, to that sound. And, and the rest of this first chapter is, it's so interesting because it, it, it feels sometimes like it's surreal, but really it's, it's kind of firmly grounded in reality. Do you find
1: that your students, are they, are they freed up? Do they feel like, does Marquez give them license to let their imagination roam more or are they uh, is it something that they maybe enjoy reading but but don't find themselves writing in that style?
3: Boy, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, my sense is that Marquez has such a distinct style that no one really would want to, to replicate it. I know mm-hmm. Latin American writers are very wary of, of the specter of Marquez and, mm-hmm. and, and seeming too much like Marquez. Right you know, my students kind of operate the same way. It's like he's, he's such his own writer that that you'd be running to, into problems just trying to write in a similar style. But the question of whether it frees up their imagination, I'm, I don't know if I know. I mean, that's I know it did for me.
2: Mm.
3: You know, in my 20s, when I was doing my MFA, I went from Faulkner to Marquez in a way. And mm-hmm. it was a very seamless kind of transition, <laughs> weirdly enough. Yeah, and I, I think what Marquez did for me was that yeah he did open up the possibilities of language and style and voice for me.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I'm not surprised that you found it seamless to go from Faulkner to Marquez. It seems like both of them had a real. Um, if we're gonna do this, let's do it. If we're if we're gonna if we're gonna create a fictional world, we're we're gonna be all in on it.
3: That's right. Yeah, let it I mean, rip. They had, the, <laughs> they had what. Faulner called his own what is a postage stamp of uh, yeah. their part of the world that they they decide well I'm going to stick to this to this and I'm going to make it as vivid and as real as possible and uh, and use my own style uh, uh, to make it come to life. Yeah, that's that's what I got from both of them.
1: Okay, so let's go back to the order that we were in. We were up to number five, which is uh, okay. Be- *Beloved* by Toni Morrison.
3: I yeah. forgot I had it's forgotten another, how
1: good this one was too. Oh, yeah, it's
3: another intimidating <laughs> one. Isn't it? Uh, I thought you know, about I thought about like just choosing novels that were a little <laughs> bit less intimidating, but you know,
1: right. Well, you well, know, was it was it Flannery O'Connor who said that, you know, the purpose of writing programs should be to discourage more people from writing? I'm wondering, did you have this in mind that you were going to basically show your students how uh how real writing is done, and, and maybe have a few of them think they were never going to measure up and give up?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, wasn't my goal, but might have been. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I should ask my students how uh, what the effect was on them.
1: Uh, okay, so this one starts out, 124 was spiteful, full of a baby's venom. Yeah. And the first paragraph really sets us up for the for the rest of the book here.
3: You know, what I chose to discuss was was Morrison's style? Mm, you know mm-hmm. what elements of her style are introduced to us in the first chapter, and it's a very purposefully dense and confusing style. Mm-hmm. Because you know she is introducing all of these plot lines and themes and and details that make no sense whatsoever. She mentions baby's venom. She mentions you know two mm-hmm. tiny hands printed in the cake. Uh, then she starts talking about all of these details that she keeps repeating over and over.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. and there's a character there's a character named baby so there's sort yeah. of like well wait, who's what here and what's what's this yeah. referring to and it is disorienting
3: it's very disorienting and and what you realize after reading the novel and then going back and reading the first chapter is that all of the the major events that will unfurl over the course of the novel the seeds of those major events uh, are planted in the first chapter mm. it's Mentioned over and over, but the rest of the novel, like this first chapter, presents them in a very non linear way mm-hmm. and in a very disor- disorienting way. You know, Morrison does that because she is, is focusing on the importance of, of memory and history mm-hmm. in the novel. Oh, right. So, which is that Setha, you know, the, the protagonist, I mean, she basically embodies the legacy of slavery. And it's manifested in this ghost of her, her daughter, the daughter Boiler alert, whose throat she slashes so that mm-hmm. you know, so that when the slave master comes and tries to capture them, this is her way of protecting her daughter. She thinks it's better to kill her daughter mm-hmm. than to let her daughter, you know, experience what she experienced as a slave. And so the novel and it's again the, the, the first chapter is a, is a kind of microcosm of it is her trying to bury all of these memories, bury that history because she has no way of, of knowing how to, to live with it. Right. You see very, very immediately that, that, that repression is incredibly problematic to her and to her daughter, Denver, Mm -hmm. the grown daughter. And it's, you know, you realize that it's, it's impossible to construct a stable identity. If you are repressing the past, if you're, if you're repressing memory and history.
1: It's almost like the author is saying, if I gave you a conventional, if I gave you an Edith Wharton paragraph here, you it would not be doing justice to the uh, confusion and the fragmentary nature of the psyches of the people who are trying to wrestle with these issues yeah. and, and these emotions.
3: Yeah, no, no other style could capture that mm. except uh, this style so yeah it's it's uh if you're confused, you're supposed to be confused, and I know that's <laughs> that yeah. that's a kind of thing that people say a lot you know with with difficult books right uh, right it's, it's especially true of this novel. There's no other way to capture setha's state of mind
1: but and there's something you know even though it's it's fragmentary, it doesn't feel fragmentary for its own sake. It's kind of like we know there's something menacing here the same time and it reminded me a little bit of you know we're being brought inside essentially a haunted house and Mm -hmm. it's that moment when you walk in and your eyes haven't adjusted yet and you're just kind of looking at you're you're not sure what it is you're actually looking at and it's kind of like a a haze or a fog until you're able to see a little more clearly
3: yeah i mean this is what i think morrison borrows from faulkner i Mm. mean her style is very much indebted to faulkner and it's a, a style that, that, that gains resonance through uh, accumulation, mm-hmm. through repetition. You know, she, she's constantly repeating these, these words and these details and, and these uh, plot lines. And, and it's the accumulation of all that ends up helping you make sense of everything. Mm. Uh, again, that's uh, in many ways how memory works, at least for, for Setha, uh, the, the protagonist. You know my first time reading her, I was amazed at how confusing it was and how reading the novel, the accumulation of information, it ended up making sense.
1: Ah, uh, okay, so I'm a little bit uh, conscious of time here. So here's what I'm gonna do. Okay. And I also have some some concluding questions, and I have a surprise bonus question okay, uh, which I want to get to. So we've got four others that we haven't discussed yet. And I am going to let you pick one of them. Uh, oh, that, man. That's, uh, that's <laughs> so here that's are the four, tough. so our readers know. It's Disgrace, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by our old friend uh, Haruki Murakami, The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides, and The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Juno Diaz.
3: You know, uh, God, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll just go with Disgrace, only because okay. it's so different. Yeah, from all the books that we talked about, yep. I mean, I guess they're all distinct, but you know, we see I've some learned... of the
1: same themes. Let's talk about that for a minute, because like the Virgin Suicides, yeah. I saw some real parallels with Secret History, the Secret History—the way it sets up, That's kind right. of the the community and the way that they're responding to the this essentially this horror show. The brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde, I think you could say, is kind of like this prologue. That's right. Like we've seen. And Haruki Murakami, I thought, reminded me a bit of, you know, it's almost like those those books with a a private eye,
2: yeah, oh, you yeah. know,
1: where, um, oh, yeah. where Sam Spade or or Philip Marlowe, and you know, where they would say, "I was in my office drinking whiskey when the dame walked in." Mm-hmm. you know except instead of whiskey the narrator's cooking spaghetti and then we find out that it's only ten thirty in the morning and he's kind of mm-hmm. defensive about that he's listening to Rossini but he gets a mysterious call from someone who urgently wants something from him but because of all these odd details and his just general odd behavior uh he seems as mysterious to us as the person who's
3: actually seeking help first of all you're right he's very much kind of like a novel with a private eye. It's very mm-hmm. much like a crime novel. I mean, he he, I, he translated um, uh, uh, Raymond Chandler oh, right. uh, okay. into Japanese. You know, <laughs> So he's very indebted to these crime writers. But what I realized in reading that first chapter is that it's not the weirdness. It's all about how he pulls you in yeah, and in a sense traps you in the world of the book. Yep. And you think that it's the weirdness that, that is what is so intriguing. But that's not only it. I think what it really is, is that it's the ambiguity of the weirdness. Mm. You're not quite sure if it's weird or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know?
1: The way he presents uh, it, it's kind of like, he's like, well, yeah. well, that's my business. Why would you ask about that? You know, like, I'm not the weird one. You're the weird one.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the, 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 you know, this girl, girl calls and it's just, such, it's both a comical and weirdly sinister conversation. And he gets off the phone and he doesn't react in a way that you would think one would react so you're wondering was that really a weird thing you yeah. know and that that ambiguity right. the fact that you can't answer that question just yet that's actually what traps you in in uh, the world of Mirakami. yeah not yeah. the weirdness exactly
1: right you know? right if if he was just a, a a freak show circus freak or something it wouldn't be nearly as interesting but the fact that he's he is kind of the one you're drawn to. You want to know more about him and you, you are kind of on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is very compelling.
3: Yeah, he does that in every fucking novel. It's, it's amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so let's do Disgrace. He's just so smart and so subtle. I feel like it's easy to overlook how how good he is and how much he's giving us in in his kind of it's it's sort of an unadorned style or or yeah. terse style i guess in a way it's it's kind of an unassuming style maybe that's the way to describe it but it it's really powerful
3: one the re- disgrace I've, I've learned a lot by reading and rereading disgrace mm-hmm. uh learned a lot as a writer i find my students the thing that they have the biggest problem with as i told you is point of view mm-hmm. and one thing that they almost all of them do when they do third person limited is that they constantly Use the characters' names, hmm. and that's not just uh, an awkward thing to. It's not not only not only reads awkwardly, but it, it screws up the point of view. Right. And what what Kotea does in all of his novels, I think he um not all of his novels, but a lot of his novels use this third person limited. He never uses the protagonist's name. Uh, in this first chapter, you I don't think you once get David Lurie, hmm. you know, the protagonist's name. So it's he, 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 he constantly.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And the, the, the interesting effect of that is that it not only gets you closer into David Lurie's point of view, it also distances you. This is really weird effect. Be, and it's purposeful because David Lurie is this very cold, distant, measured and controlled person who lives this incredibly, you know, measured and controlled life. Right. How do you enter into the point of view of someone that cold? You know, it's a very interesting thing, and and prose style allows for that. I thought, and, and that's why it's an interesting style to to kind of study. And in this first chapter, what I loved about it is that it it introduces what you think the rest of the novel is going to be about, which is his he frequents this this prostitute, and and slowly has feelings for her, and then the you know he finds out. He uh, accidentally finds out about her actual life, and she stops being. She basically cancels their uh, uh, their work together. What's really in- you, first of all, you think that the rest of the novel is going to be about this, but it's not. This plot is is exclusively only in the first chapter. Mm. But at the end of it, he tracks her down and finds her, and then calls her. And what you realize at the end of the chapter is that this very controlled and 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 unemotional. And careful man who thinks that his life is pretty good or is okay enough is actually his life is actually very fractured mm-hmm. and very sad and the the fact that he would make himself look for this woman this prostitute tells you that he lives a deprived life and the question that i loved that first chapter asks is what will happen in this novel that will further intrude upon his very, very modulated life. What's going to create further fractures in this very controlled life? Right. He wants something more than what he has. And and Koseya just very, very subtly tells you this in this first chapter.
1: Yeah, even the first sentence. I mean, it starts out, for a man of his age, 52, divorced, he has, to his mind, solved the problem of sex rather well and it, it's wonderful. It tells us it's, it is. And it, the the part, you know, it's it's so great that it's got that to his mind, you know, like he's he's confident. He seems to be he takes a kind of pride in how he's solved it. Well, first of all, he saw sex as a problem, a problem yeah. that needs to be solved. And yeah. then he thinks he's solved it, and the author is is telling us like, well, this is, you know, he thinks he's solved it, but we all know that he's missing the point in a way too he's 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 missing the whole passionate side of it
3: that's right and I
1: mean, he, but he we see it. that his yeah we see that his temperament is almost like well i'm not going to cha- you know I, i'm not going to change at 52 um, so i'll just solve mm-hmm. this problem and then i i can move on and i can live without having this problem
3: that's right and and it's clear that he can't live that way that's not sustainable uh, he just doesn't know it, but in a sense he does, but it, it, it all goes, it all comes down to that voice. You know, uh, only a particular kind of person would talk about sex in that way. Right. It seems like such a kind of cold and unremarkable first sentence, but it tells you so much about the the character and the wonderful thing about the rest of the novel is that it's so powerful. Mm. Uh, despite this very cold and distant style, this distant voice uh, because the things that happened to him, the thing that he ends up experiencing in the novel would wake up anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, there's a reason. I, I'm sure you know that. You know, uh, in England they had all these this this survey. They surveyed a lot of writers and critics, and what was the best novel of the last 25 years? And, yeah. and you know, in America it was Beloved. Uh, in in Britain it was uh, it was Disgrace. Mm. Wow. And I think the novel uh, deserves that because it's, it's you know, it's a it's a deeply, deeply intelligent novel. Yeah. Um, and there are scenes in the novel, I don't want to spoil for anyone, but there are scenes in a novel are, that are just so quietly devastating. I, I'm constantly referring, going back to this book and, and opening passages just to read because mm. they are so good.
1: I think I'm going to have to put this on the list. I'll have to do a an episode just on this novel. So
3: good. It's worth it.
1: Are you ready for the surprise bonus question?
3: I I hope so. I hope I'm ready.
1: (laughs) Okay. T.S. Eliot said, quote, good authors borrow, great writers steal, end quote. With this in mind, I took a look at the opening to the novel Dragonfish by Vu Tran, (laughs) and I found what I thought was a fairly direct influence of One of the books that we've talked about tonight on the opening of your novel.
3: Oh, I'm so excited about this! (laughs) Can you
1: can you guess which one I'm talking about?
3: I'm not sure, honestly. I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) Really? I I... thought I thought you were going to confess. Was this something you weren't aware of?
3: Maybe. Oh, oh, it's the Great Gatsby, isn't it? Yes. Yes. The Great Gatsby. So totally right. (laughs) So the.
1: The book opens with a man, there's a scene where a man's peering out of his door, he's holding a gun, and there's something menacing out there, and the suspense is is built, something something out there is dangerous enough to make our narrator sleep with a gun, we kind of wonder what it is. And then the scene breaks, and we get this paragraph. No one out there to hurt you but yourself, my father, a devout atheist, used to tell me. I never took this literally so much as personally, because my father knew better than anyone how selfish and short-sighted I can be. But whether he was warning me about myself or just naively reassuring me about the world, I have chosen in my 20 years as police to believe his world, his words as one might in aliens or the hereafter. They've become, it turns out, a mantra for self-preservation. And I thought, Boy, does that remind me of the first, <laughs> the first few lines of the great Gatsby.
3: You're the first person to point that out. And you're absolutely right. I was, it, that was absolutely on my mind. Oh, it I was. was. Yeah. Yeah. When I was writing it, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, it's so funny. I, for, for a moment I forgot, but yeah, it's absolutely right.
1: So you were, you got the narrator's personality and the narrator's, uh, shortcomings out there. Through the fatherly mm-hmm. advice, so you you must have been thinking, how can I make this about uh, what my narrator might know and not know, and and how my narrator might experience what is what is going to come? Is that yeah. was that kind of the thinking behind it?
3: Yeah, it, it was. It's also a kind of like I, I I realized first of all, I I feel like when you're writing a first person narrator uh, at this point uh, in in this century. You're you're living under the shadow of of, of Gatsby's mm-hmm. first narrator, you know, yeah. and and that voice, that that retrospective voice. And I was writing a retrospective narrator, and you know, I couldn't help myself, but kind of echo uh, Nick Carraway. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted that first page to be a confession, but not quite sound like a confession,
2: you right. know, right?
3: Uh,
1: and it it is such a tone, you know, it really. I mean, you could have kept going with just the action part of it. And then we'd have, you know, a very different kind of novel and it'd be the accelerator pedal pushed to the floor. But then it's hard to introduce the introspection or the, the thoughtfulness uh, later on. I mean, it's it's good to get That's that right. up front for the reader. Like, oh, this this guy's different. He's not just going to be, you know, a, uh, a Jack Reacher character who's yeah. <laughs> yeah. just sprinting through one thing after another here.
3: Yeah, you're right. And that was very, you know, I have to confess that it's very important to me that the novel not read, that the novel be literary, you know. Mm-hmm. In, in that first page, in that first page of The Great Gatsby, you know, it's it's Nick Carraway, again, trying to tell you that I'm a very thoughtful and contemplative person. And I want you to trust me. Uh, I'm going to get you to trust me by confessing something about myself, a weakness in myself. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I wanted my narrator to do. And, of course, he's doing it through uh, a judgment of his father's. Right. Uh, which is basically what, what Nick Carraway does. And <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, it's so funny that you no one has pointed that out. I, but, I, I, but that's actually very, you know, it, it's very uh, meaningful to me, you know, because, like, God, I forget when I first read The Great Gatsby. But but you know you love a book as much as I love The Great Gatsby, and you definitely want to steal something from it.
1: Well, now we have uh, we can look forward to your next book, and we have nine others that we're going to be comparing against the first few pages <laughs> to see uh, to see yeah. what you've taken from those. Okay, Professor Vu Tran, thank you very much for joining me again. I really enjoyed the conversation.
3: Oh, I did too. Thanks so much for having me back. <laughs>
1: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Vutran for coming back on. He's such a smart guy, good writer, good guest. That was fun. It's inspiring to speak with someone who loves literature as much as he does, and it was enjoyable to prepare for this one, too. I have a pile of books on my desk, ten books that are so inviting. Open them up, read the first chapter... And marvel at the world within. Let yourself go. Check out our show sponsor at audibletrial.com slash HOL. They'll give you a free audiobook. And throw a little jingle my way if you do. Is that crass? (laughs) Is that a crass appeal for financial assistance? Maybe. But is it crass to say that you will get something you might like for free? Or for me to use the phrase, throw a little jingle? Is that that, that phrase capable of being crass? Throw a little jingle? So many questions for the new year. Happy 2017, everyone. Let's be good to everyone this year. Let's enjoy our time on Earth and the great books that are ours for the taking. Let's have fun together and grow. Let's have fun and learn and grow. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.